When writing fiction, we might allow ourselves to borrow from our intimates the tiniest of true or true-like descriptions. We might mine the minds of our loved ones' lives for fine details. We might steal what we want and adjust the rest. But what about memoir? What happens when our characters are not just characters, but family members, friends, or loved ones? In today's 11th hour lecture, Sarah Safian will discuss the personal boundaries we should watch and those we should push through for the sake of our writing. Sarah Safian is the author of Ithaca, her memoir of being an adoptee who was found by her birth family. She teaches memoir at Sarah Lawrence College and works as a writing coach. Formerly a journalism professor at NYU and the New School, Sarah has written for publications including the New York Times, Smithsonian, and Yoga Journal. Please join me in welcoming her here today. Okay. And then give it a... How's that? Testing. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. I tend to project, but I also tend to lose my voice, so the mic is a good idea. Thank you for being here this morning uh, to the first of the 11th hour series this week. And uh, yeah, I'm talking about one of my favorite memoir subjects, uh, the politics of writing about loved ones, as I call it. Um, And I'd like to open with a quote from uh, radio host and author Garrison Keillor of Prairie Home Companion fame, um, among other uh, books and broadcasts. He says, writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. People meet writers and are bowled over when the writer is friendly to them and invites them to his house for a glass of wine or to shoot up heroin or whatever they do. And they talk their heads off. And then a year later, it comes out in a book. And there follow years of bitter and fruitless litigation, and that is why you should always keep a writer at arm's length, and that's all true. Um, It's sort of a cautionary tale, maybe more for your loved ones than for you, Um, And there are illustrious others, Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm, among them, who agree that betrayal falls under authorial license. Um, I like to think that I take a more nuanced view of this issue. Um, Just to get a sense of who's in the room, just to raise your hand if, if you feel like sharing, who here has written a memoir? Okay, okay. And who's currently in the process of working on one? Great. Okay, a lot of people. And uh, who is thinking about it but maybe scared off by what your loved ones will think, whether as characters or readers or both? Okay, and some of the same people maybe. Right, right. Um, Throughout, feel free to raise your hand to chime in with a question or a thought um, so that this is partly discussion as well as lecture and addresses particular issues coming up for you. So as Philip Lope wisely puts in his great book about writing, To Show and To Tell, uh, I'm someone who calls himself a writer, and if I write about my life, I am inevitably writing about others, because no man or woman is an island. Um, I kind of say facetiously that a novelist has it easy. 
being a nonfiction writer myself, uh, that characters sprung from the imagination don't talk back when they're not happy with the way they're depicted on the page. Um, but actually, I'm completely kidding because as loved ones of novelists also gripe about characters that are supposedly based on them, you can basically conclude that if you're a writer and also have any personal relationships at all, you basically can't win. So that's what I'm examining here today, how to finesse the, the, the two roles you play, a loved one and an artist. Um, but it is, as Carol said, more direct in memoir when your character is your ex-husband or your twin brother or your mother. Um, are familial loyalty and literary integrity necessarily at odds? And how can we most effectively navigate this touchy terrain to maintain our real-life relationships but without compromising the stories that we need to tell? How can we write a memoir that we can stand behind both as the author and as the mother, brother, best friend? A lot of it comes from the very origin of this, which is what your initial motivation is to write a memoir. And if anyone would care to share, just very briefly, uh, for those who raised their hands earlier, uh, very briefly, what is compelling you to write a memoir? Would anyone like to share? What's motivating you? Conflict with a parent. Conflict with a parent. OK. Anyone else? Yes, in the striped shirt? Okay. Um, that I have five children, and they were 7, 11, 16, 20, and 22 when he died. Okay. And I didn't tell my children for a long time that I was working on this. Okay. And then my motivation to do it was this encouragement, but I also wanted to say in a fix-it world, yeah. you can't fix grief. You can't fix grief. Yeah. So, so in a nutshell, your motivation is uh, at least partly to help others, to tell readers, uh, you know, you can't fix grief or, or it's, you can't feel sorry for yourself, like encouraging them to move on, whatever their particular situation is around grief or around a similar issue. Okay. Okay. And anyone else? Yes. Okay, so making sense of her past, uh, so it's, it's a way to process it for yourself, to gain clarity of your own. Right, right. One more? Yes. Well, for me, it's more like thinking about it. But for me, it would be to go beyond these superficial judgments about Hamlet and kind of get down into the sense of them as characters in the world who mm -hmm. really make sense and who really um, are people with all the kind of motivations and feelings. It, it's that sense of there's a lot more than just whatever you experienced on the surface. It's more like like that in terms of... So is it is it similar to the previous comment where you're trying to better understand these relationships through processing it through writing? Yeah, and then coming to some kind of 
mm. more universal about it, because there needs to be some sense of mm. also the bigger picture of the world, from my perspective. A sense of the bigger picture, yeah. and how your family unit yeah. fits within that bigger picture. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm sort of repeating and encapsulating the questions in case people in the back can't yeah. hear. Yeah, but is that the gist? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so gaining clarity and helping others, all these make sense. Yeah, one more, Carol. Uh, leave a legacy. To leave a legacy for History later for, generations. Yeah, for the generations. Uh-huh. And so a legacy for your, are you thinking of your family members in particular as your readers or sort of the larger readership? Both. Larger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly your like later generations of your family are part of that readership. Right. So again, in addition, go ahead. Sorry, Carol. If we have them. Right. If we have any more generations. Right. Right. Well, again, it brings up that issue of sometimes the, the politics are about your loved one being your reader, uh, and that's, that's also an issue which I'll touch on, um, in addition to them being characters in your memoir. Well, this is, thank you very much for those who shared, and, and, and all those make sense as motivations, and, you know, I'm not here to label uh, right and wrong motivations to write a memoir, um, but I, I would venture, and nobody brought this up, so I feel free to say that maybe not a great motivation, for example, is, is to garner sympathy. Um, because like what you were saying about grief, it's, it's, it's processed and you want to do something with it. It's not simply handing someone your bad experience to witness it. You're doing something with it and you're thinking of the reader and how to help the reader through your personal experience. So it's, it's different from what you were describing. Simply turning over your, your trauma or your tragedy without any sense of what it means but simply wanting people to bear witness and perhaps feel bad for you. Maybe not the ideal motivation to write a memoir if you, if you want other people to, to care about your story. Um, seeking revenge. I don't know if the motivation uh, with the family conflict over here, uh, I, I'm not saying that that was the motivation, but, but that, you know, it can be a common motivation, you know, to like settle a score that's probably not going to turn into the most compelling story um, because a rant is not a story. Um, and again, to quote Philip Lopez, he said, never write to settle scores. Enter into the other person's point of view and be as fair-minded as possible. Um, and just an, an anecdote from my own experience of writing Ithaca, um, I, uh, I'm sort of horrified slash amused when I look at the reviews on Amazon of my memoir because of the range of them <laughs> and, and the range of the negative ones. Um, and just really briefly, for those of you who are unfamiliar, as Carol said, it's a memoir about being an adopted person who was found by my birth family, and it's both parents and three full siblings. They married after relinquishing me for adoption. Um, and uh, it starts with an out-of-the-blue phone call. We correspond by letter for three years, and we have our reunion. I'm not really giving anything away by telling you all that. That's sort of the parameter of the book. And 
people, uh, not everyone, but, but several readers saw it as very black and white, where there was a good guy and a bad guy. And some said that my birth parents were insensitive and in invading my life and, uh, and not taking my feelings into account and just showing up unannounced and expecting me to be the long-lost daughter. Equally emphatic were reviews saying that I was a cold-hearted bitch who was holding my birth parents at arm's length for three years when they were loving and all they wanted to do was to know me and, and how ungrateful I was. Uh, that I had not one but two sets of parents. Um, I don't know why, if it's simply more, maybe that's better, but honestly, like having two sets of parents, no matter how great they are, is inherently more complicated. Um, so the reason I find that encouraging, thats they both sound harsh in opposite ways, but it's because to this issue that Lopate mentioned of fairness, it made me think, well, gee, I must have told the story fairly if there are people who could have such disparate reactions. You know, if everyone had thought, I'm the hero and my birth parents are the bad guys, I would have been horrified because I wouldn't have told their side of the story well because that, that's not true. I mean, there is truly no bad guy or good guy. It's very gray and murky and we're all human and we're all flawed and sometimes our needs and desires conflicted. That's all there is to it. And the more astute readers felt that way about it. But I even appreciated the black and white readers for that reason, if that makes sense, that they could have almost polar opposite impressions of the same story. Um, so I thought, well, I must have told it fairly if there could be such a variety of opinion about it. Um, another not great motivation for writing a memoir is simply to confess. Um, uh, it's, it's certainly um, personally fulfilling and maybe even cathartic and clarifying to write a memoir. It's not as though it's not. If that's the sole motivation, it may not necessarily be something that you need to put out there for other people to read. Um, because your personal journal doesn't equal a crafted work that's for other people. Um, it's sort of a fringe benefit to get personal uh, satisfaction out of it. Um, but if that's the sole motivation, that's not going to necessarily guarantee that other people are, are going to be invested in your story. Um, I'd say the main good motivation for writing a memoir is simply because you've recognized a good story that happens to have occurred to you or in your life. And not, not because it happened to you, but I would venture perhaps in spite of the fact that it happened to you. It's just a good story, period, just like with fiction, just like with any genre. Um, but it happens to be about you. Um, and Philip Lopate says, writing about one's family or intimates can be an aggressive, vindictive act. But it can also be a way of communicating something to loved ones you never could before, a gift of the truth of your feelings. It can poison the air or it can clear it. And uh, so it's really a case-by-case -case situation in terms of the circumstances, in terms of the particular relationships involved in your family. Um, so in terms of involving your family in your creative process, if at all, that's, that's a sticky wicket. And one way to do that is do you give your loved ones the manuscript at all? And if so, at what point in your creative process and how much control to veto or accept do you give them? And how do you decide what to change, if anything, after hearing their response? Uh, what to change or leave out entirely? Um, how do you determine when it would hurt people 
uh, without really advancing the story. You know, it might just be gratuitously included when it, you know what, it's not really serving the story, and it doesn't hurt the story to remove that and also spare this person's feelings. It's not undermining the integrity of the story. Maybe it's sort of a red herring, actually. And I had a couple of examples of that in mind where... I, yes, I was protecting people's feelings, but it also wasn't serving the story anyway. Um, remember that you don't have to share the manuscript. Um, Philip Lopez in this camp, he says, having made the decision to go ahead and write about someone, and having done it to my satisfaction, I don't want to give that person such power. Once you invite people to make changes on your unpublished manuscript, they will. Besides, it's my moral dilemma, not theirs. Giving them the option to revise would be like shifting the ethical burden onto them. I, I understand Philip Lopate's point, uh, but ultimately about just uh, a blanket refusal to share the manuscript, I, I have to respectfully disagree with that. Um, because in my experience, I found that Sharing the manuscript in itself gives your loved ones power uh, in a good way because even if you don't make the changes that they ask for, you're offering them the opportunity to react before it's out there in the world when it's too late to make changes. Um, on the other hand, I was very protective of my creative process in writing Ithaca, so I took a couple years to write it. I barely... I didn't share it and I barely talked about it with my loved ones while I was writing it because I wanted to write the book that needed to be written. And I also, you know, had their point of view, you know, I had them looking over my shoulder in my head already. So I had that sort of super ego going on without them actually um, vetoing or accepting something. I already sort of had that conscience in there. Um, so I didn't want to hinder my creative process. I wrote the book that I wanted to write. I even had a few back and forths with my editor. And then when I felt like it was the book that I wanted it to be, but there was still time to make changes, I gave every member of both of my families their own copy of the manuscript, admittedly my very least favorite part of the process. Uh, with shaking hands, I handed it over. I think, you know, two weeks, three weeks, something like that, I gave them a time frame, and I said, you can feel free to read it, not read it, tell me what you think, we can have a conversation about it. I never guaranteed that I would make any changes they asked for, that I'd cut things, that I'd add things, but we could... I could hear them out. And um, what I mean about giving someone power just by virtue of doing that, I have an example. Um, there was an incident that my, uh, my mother felt uncomfortable being a part of. She was a part of it in, in real life, but she, in reading it, felt uncomfortable being part of it. And she wanted me to take it out altogether. And I explained to her why it was very important for the incident to remain in the book. Um, but her being part of it was not crucial to the story. So I said, and this is not fabrication, this is not James Fry, this is protecting someone's privacy, it's different. Um, I said, I'm happy to rewrite the incident with you not knowing about it, you not involved. But here are my reasons why it has to stay in, but I'm happy to take you out if that's what's making you uncomfortable. So I rewrote it. And I showed it to her again, with her removed. And she read it, and she thought about it, and she said, you know, 
I think I feel okay being included in it, actually. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating, because I had given her the airtime to respond, and I had heard her out, she had heard me out, I had revised it in a way that I felt maintained the integrity of the story, but also protected her, and she felt so heard that she ended up letting me go back to the original version of it. So I thought that that was really interesting. So she had just enough power. Um, and by the way, it doesn't have to be something negative. Reading someone else's depiction of you, if you've ever had that experience, is weird. Even if it's a positive depiction, you don't feel in control. Somebody is creating you on the page, and that feels strange. And so allowing somebody to respond before it's out there, uh, so to speak, gives them a little control back. Um, so I think that's a very interesting way that that turned out. And I would have been happy with it without her in it, but I, I restored it because she said that was okay with her. But she got to a place where it was okay, you know, because we'd had this interaction. So um, the other reason I'd argue is helpful to share the manuscript is as much as you think you know your loved ones, you really can't predict what people will react to and how. You think you can. They're going to be horrified by this. They're not going to care about that. You know, you're very likely to be incorrect about it. So better to check than to guess, right? You know, like why take something out when it turns out that it doesn't bother them? Um, Philip Lopez talks to this issue. He says, complicating the dilemma is that one does not always know what will cause offense. I've written fairly critically about people who seem to have no problem with it. I have written somewhat negatively about people who ignored the main substance of my critique but pounced with outrage on some picayune detail that they thought I got wrong. I have written glowingly about people who took it amiss because they did not like the idea of having a walk-on cameo in my center of the universe story when they considered themselves as the center of the universe. <laughs> I mean, that's a weird one. They want to be written about more, like, you know, so you never know. Um, or simply because they did not like the presumption that I could take their measure in a few paragraphs, regardless of how positively I ended up doing so. I've given offense to certain people by not writing about them when I wrote critically about their colleagues. So you just can't predict. So again, why guess? Why uh, tailor your work when you don't even know what the response is? Find out for sure. Another example is from a colleague of mine um, who's from South Africa, and he, he lives in the States now, and he wrote, he's written several memoirs, but for his first one, um, he sent the manuscript to his parents, he was under deadline, you know, it took a while to get to South Africa and back, this is pre-email, and he was waiting and waiting for them to return, you know, to return it with their thoughts, with their notes, and it wasn't coming, and he was, you know, under the gun with the deadline, so he sat to t down to try to read it as they would. And he crossed things out, and he revised. He was really trying to see it through their eyes, you know, what would bother them. And he was making all these revisions. And then finally, at the last minute, the manuscript arrived from them, and nothing overlapped. Nothing. All the things they responded to, all the things they changed, were completely different from what he thought they would be. Um, and he, they were unconcerned about things that he thought they would be concerned by. 
And so they ended up talking it out and, and you know, resolving it in a way that, that was pleasing to both sides. And he's written two subsequent memoirs, and the parents have gotten progressively comfortable with, again, with this idea of being written about, you know, having themselves uh, portrayed on the page by someone else, um, regardless of what's said. So it's gotten progressively easier work to work. Um, the other example from my own experience I wanted to bring up is... Um, Anyone who's read Ithaca might not be surprised by this, but the person who responded the most uh, thoroughly to the manuscript was my birth father, Adam. Um, we had several uh, multi-hour phone conversations about it. Um, and his main issue, because I excerpt from our letters in the manuscript and uh, in the book, um, because we corresponded for three years, I can't possibly, you know, it's not an epistolary memoir, I can't include the entirety of every letter that we exchanged. But I excerpted it, and sometimes he felt taken out of context, he said. Um, for instance, this is just one example of a maybe a 10-page letter that he sent me, and it had all kinds of light stuff in there about what the family was up to, and the kids had a soccer game, and another kid was in a play, and they were going on a trip to Florida to visit their grandmother. You know, all this light, chatty, conversational stuff. But then in a paragraph toward the end, he, uh, as, as he tended to do in all of his letters, he was pushing me toward a reunion before I felt ready. That's a big tension in the book. Um, and he would say, you know, we really want to meet you. It's very, you know, sort of, I felt sort of guilted by it. Uh, I mean, I, I come to guilt very easily, so I'm not entirely blaming him for that. But <clears throat> the, the, the crux of the letter was, was this kind of pressure to meet. And so in one instance, I excerpted just that. And he said, well, like, for example, that letter, that's only one paragraph, it's ten pages, and I'm talking about lots of other stuff also. You know, it's not like, that was my drumbeat, that's all I ever wrote to you. And I thought, you know what, he's right. And not only is he justified in feeling misrepresented, but it's not accurate. It's not portraying the story accurately. And how much more interesting would it be if I revised it, which I did based on his response, um, excerpting some of the lighter parts of the letter, maybe summarizing some of it, and then making the point that, but what stood out most to me was this last paragraph where he was yet again pushing me to meet before I felt ready. That's so much more nuanced and interesting. You know, that here he was writing this, you know, the majority of it was this light, breezy, friendly, loving letter, but what I homed in on was the last paragraph. And so that says something about me and my emotional process that's much more interesting than simply taking this chunk out and acting as though it was... I didn't intend... The thing is, he pointed that out to me. It's not as though I meant to demonize him. It was just the most important paragraph to me, So I and it, it was directly relevant to the, to the ongoing narrative, but I didn't intend to misrepresent him. So I was really actually appreciative of him pointing this out. And so not only did he feel much better about the revised version but I felt that it improved the integrity of the story also. So for that reason, I felt grateful for his editorial feedback, if that makes sense. Um, it's not that it didn't just damage it, it improved it. Um, really briefly, would anyone like to share any experiences, if you're in the midst of working on something, or you already have, of sharing versus not sharing, whether you're verbally talking about it or you've actually shown pages to loved ones? Anyone, or you're thinking about should I, shouldn't I? Yeah, Carol. Um, I have uh, some work that I, I showed, I usually show it to my 
yeah. and ask her if it's appropriate um, and if she, she feels like it's accurate. And, um, and, and I, I've also shown it to a best friend who's mm -hmm. also um, actually now kind of a, an in-law to me. Our, our kids got married. And okay. I'm kind of concerned that uh, that my best friend has now put me at a distance because uh -huh. um, because it is you know it it is intimate um, and so you know I I'm really trying to balance what the what the work is going to be and if it's right. worth it to go right to go there. Is it worth it is, is a big, important question. Right. Is your best friend distancing herself, do you think, in reaction to what she read or because she doesn't want you to get any more material out of her? I, that's, that's <laughs> right. Either way. Right. Um, maybe both. Yeah. Or maybe it's just my own, uh, my own paranoia. So, and there's that. Yeah, memoirists are very paranoid by nature. <laughs> Am I going to hurt someone's feelings? Yeah, right. My, my experience has been that when other people read what I've read and I think it's just horrible, I mean, you know, revealing, right. um, then the rest of my family goes, no, that's not bad. See. You know, that's just fine. And for me, right. it's just coming from... Well, again, see, that's why it's so useful. I mean, and that's a happy, that's a happy resolution when they underreact. That's not always how it goes. But isn't, isn't that lovely that you, you have, I mean, you have such a strong internal sensor that in some cases is, is even more powerful than their reaction, their actual reaction. So it, like I said, better to check than to guess because you would have left all this stuff out that could be very important to the story and it's not going to hurt their feelings anyway. But why not go and find out? Um, especially if there's time to revise, you know. So, a any other examples of, of sharing? Yes. I wrote about my daughter's wedding being called off okay. by the groom oh. um, several years ago, and she seemed to be okay about it at the time. But I kind of, you know, wanted to give it some time. I did use it in um, my thesis as part of my thesis for my MFA. But um, now she kind of acts like she doesn't want me to put it in the public domain. Mm. And I asked one writer about it, like at AWP, and he's like, well, tell her to write her own damn story about it. <laughs> you wrote it from the standpoint of the mother of the bride. Mm -hmm. um, he's like, you know, you get to tell your own story. I don't know. What do you think about it? Well, that's interesting, and it kind of touches on the point about no person is an island, because I, I, I do support that notion that it's, it's your story, it's your lowercase t truth, and your daughter has her own truth, um, and, it, and it reminds me of an anecdote of, of Jimmy and, and Rosalind Carter when... Um, she was writing her memoir, and she was being interviewed about it, and he and Jimmy was there also, and she was answering a question, and he was correcting, well, no, it wasn't like that, it was like this, and it happened like that, and I didn't say that, and you said this, and she just said, Jimmy, you wrote your memoir, now I'm writing mine. <laughs> so it's the same thing, like, go write your own memoir. <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, not all our loved ones have the capacity to express themselves in writing, you know, or, or, or get their work published or at least out there to the degree where other people may be outside the family circle are reading it. So, you know, they, they may be resentful in that way. Well, I, I'm not a writer, so how can I just go off and write my memoir like anybody could do that? You know, so a loved one may respond that way. 
Um, her evol your daughter's evolving feelings are very human, and it brings up another thing that I forgot to mention. Before I even started the memoir, I did check in with everybody saying, how do you feel about my doing this? And they all kind of gave me their blessing. So initially, before word one was on the page, they said, yes, that's okay. So I kind of checked in about that first. Um, again, that's not for everyone. Some of you have said, well, I've been working on it, and, and I didn't tell my children for a while that I was. So that timing is not right for everybody. But for me, I felt like I... If they resisted, again, maybe we would talk about it and get to a place where they were comfortable with it. It's not as though I definitely wouldn't have done it, but I did feel the need to check in with them before I began. So, and you did something similar with your daughter and uh, her groom calling off the, the wedding. Um, and it makes sense that as it becomes more of a reality, she might feel more tentative about it being revealed. And I think... I mean, for me, you know, again, each each family dynamic is different. Each story is different. Each particular, you know, your daughter's personality is different from someone else's loved one's personality. So it's hard to generalize. But I would say keeping the lines of communication open and letting her continue to respond, and expressing with respect and gentleness your reasons for doing it, um, so that she can come around to a place of comfort with it. Um, not, you know, that could be a tall order, but I, I would say that, you know, continuing to include her and hearing her, I think the need to be heard is is important, you know, for, for the ones who are being written about. Yeah. Um, but it's a very good point, like my memoir versus your memoir and the idea of multiple truths, which I'll get into a little bit. Um, another issue, in addition to sharing the manuscript or not, is pseudonyms. Um changing names, identifying characteristics to protect someone's privacy. Um, I did change the names. And I changed the names of my birth fam relatives in my birth family and where my birth parents live and where they went to college because they live in the town where they went to college, which is where they met. So those two things are kind of connected. And I felt like if I just changed those two things, I could keep everything else the same. Um, and I, I changed the names of a couple of other people in the adoption community. I kind of make fun of one guy's support group, so I changed his name, although everyone in the adoption community recognized who it was. But he said he liked the book, so I don't, maybe he didn't recognize himself. I don't know. But I, I didn't care that much about his feelings. He's not you know, a loved one. I mean, I, I respect him and all, but I wasn't so worried about his feelings as compared to my, my birth family. Um, and I changed another person's name, and also I had to change the, the time at which something occurred. I had to uh, change, make it a different year, because changing just the name wouldn't have been sufficient in, in veiling the person's identity. But other than that, I kept it all the way it is. And I really felt like, in addition to protecting their privacy, again, you know, my dual issue is maintaining these relationships, but at the same time maintaining the integrity of your work, and from a creative standpoint, I found pseudonyms very freeing because as much as memoir is a genre of nonfiction, it's also your own story. Like you rightly said, it's your memoir, it's your truth, it's inherently subjective. And so it, it, it create, the pseudonyms created a little bit of separation between the real people and my characters. They could be my characters. They were my characters. And yes, they were real people, but it helped me get a little bit of creative distance, which felt freeing to me. 
um, having that separation. And I didn't take the pseudonyms lightly. I chose them at the very beginning of the process. I thought about them very carefully. I wanted them to be meaningful to me, even if the reader didn't get it or even my you know, birth relatives didn't get it. Because I wanted to get used to them under those names. So it wasn't as though I wrote it under their real names and then slapped on the pseudonyms at the end. So I definitely recommend that. So they feel organic and authentic. You know, it's not just some fake name, because it'll feel fake, you know? Um, the other thing is, and I come from a journalistic background, so I have a lot of uh, respect for factual accuracy, that even if you're making identifying changes, um, to make sure they're factually accurate, because if they're not, that can be distracting to the reader. Um, even if it's not actually, you know, that, you know, they, they, they didn't go to the University of New Hampshire, they went to Dartmouth. If, you know, even if it's not true anyway, you want it to be accurate. And I bring up Dartmouth as an example because um, I initially chose that as my birth parents' fake college where they went and where they met. And I was conceived on campus. In 1968, well, Dartmouth wasn't co-ed until 1973 or four, and luckily I found that out before the book was published, so I could change it. Uh, I think to the University of New Hampshire. Um, so that's something that you know I, I wouldn't want, and I'm the kind of reader who would notice that and be distracted, and then wonder what else are you not telling me straight? You know, so you really want to get even your changes accurate so that you're not distracting your reader. Um, this touches on what we were talking about before, the multiple truths, the idea of point of view, that like you rightly said, it's your particular memory, it's your memoir. And again, I'm a, I'm a journalist as well as a memoirist, so I very well understand and appreciate the distinction between the reporter or objective informant versus the memoirist, who I think of as a subjective interpreter. And again, that's not the same as fabrication, it's different. Um, it's your truth, it's your memory. It's sort of factual accuracy versus deeper truth. And the other thing is, it all comes down to me to transparency. You know, if the reader is in on it, then you're good. In other words, you know, some people quibble, you know, if there's a, a bit of dialogue from when the author was five years old, you know, and the author is now 45. And people say, well, how could you possibly remember a conversation verbatim from when you were five? Well, guess what? You can't, and we all know that. So nobody's being misled because you know that the author is doing her best to recall it. So it's not as though she's pretending that she had a tape recorder strapped to her when she was five. You know, she's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. She, you know, we all know and understand that you recall it to the best of your ability, and the way that you recall it informs your truth. And furthermore, um, the multiple truth idea, I think it can seem like an obstacle, but I think it's a great creative opportunity sometimes because I think the variability of memory can be fascinating. And for instance, in Ithaca, sometimes I brought up that as an example, where I remember something one way, my father, for instance, remembered it differently, and I present both versions because I'm kind of saying, isn't that interesting that this informs my experience going forward, because I remember it like this. This informs his experience going forward, because he remembers it this way. You know, like, Or I remember it this way, he doesn't remember it at all. You know, I remember when he told me I was adopted, he didn't remember that conversation at all. 
and that says a lot about the way he felt about you know not wanting to acknowledge the fact that I was adopted and just you know wishing that my birth family didn't exist and uh, I remembered it as this like crucial conversation in my childhood so that's interesting so I say both um, and who knows if it went exactly the way I remember it but that's my truth and I took that going forward um, I mean, again, the idea of multiple truths. Uh, Tobias Wolf, who wrote uh, the memoir This Boy's Life, says, I've been corrected on some points, mostly, by, mostly of chronology. Also, my mother thinks that a dog I describe as ugly was actually quite handsome. <laughs> so again, that's an opinion. It's not just factual accuracy. But still, his experience was the ugliness of the dog, and so that informed his truth. Um, I'm allow- I've allowed some of these points to stand because this is a book of memory and memory has its own story to tell but I've done my best to tell a truthful story um, really quick does anyone else have examples of multiple truths if this has come up when you're working on your memoir I mean you, you already brought up the example well you didn't say exactly that your daughter remembered it differently but any any examples of somebody saying, well, no, it wasn't like that. It was like this. Yeah. It's not so much local truths, but you mean missing truths? Missing truths. In this case, I have a series of letters that my grandfather wrote to my mother. Okay. When she was six years old, he was serving in the military. He's building the world. I don't have the letters that I'm certain he wrote to my grandmother. Um, because what man is going to be in service right. and not write to my Right. Right. Um, I think she destroyed them when she remarried. Okay. Out of respect to man I know with my grandfather. Okay. Um, so there's just sort of that gap. Okay. I have letters written to a six-year-old in, in very basic language, and, you know, how are you today, honey? Um, right. But not the... Not to the wife. Not to the wife. And so I guess you can only speculate. Um, is your grandmother still living? Is it something you can ask her about? Or is it like, do you think she destroyed them because she wanted to put all that behind her and not think about it anymore? Um, I think, again, it's just out of respect for her new husband. Yeah, right, um, right. She saved the other letters to give to my mother. Right, because that would be meaningful for her to have those. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. easy to ask her about. I've asked her a whole lot about this episode, you know, chapter for life. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's the other question. Like, you know, when is it even comfortable to have a conversation with that loved one? Sometimes the answer is it's not, and you, out of respect for their feelings, um, and you're, you know, you're not sure if you're right about that. But it, it does sound logical that he would write to his wife when he's in the service, and if the letters cease to exist now, that perhaps she destroyed them out of respect for her second husband. Um, if that's something that you speculate about, you don't have to be sure. That's the other thing about transparency is you can let your reader in on, you know, I think that maybe it was this or that. You know, if, if there's this sort of glaring omission, like where are these letters, and you feel like, you know, I, I haven't read your manuscript, but if you feel the need to explain that, you can be honest about your uncertainty, you know. And sometimes that's interesting too, you know. Um, any other, one more example? Yes. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in that case, uh, and again, I, I'm not you know intimately familiar with with your memoir, but one way to go would be to just tell your truth, the father who you remember. The other is to tell both. And like you just talked about, you know, different, different order in the family, different relationships with the same parent, which makes a lot of sense. If that seems like it enhances the story, which it might, you know, the idea of that discrepancy could be interesting. If it just feels like a red herring because that wasn't your experience at all, then you can just focus on your experience. And that's not lying because it's, it's your memory of him. You, it's not as though you're hiding memories of this alcoholism. You really genuinely don't have any. Um, and so that is your truth. So you, there are different ways that you can use that, but it doesn't have to be an obstacle. Um, just switching gears a little quickly, I wanted to touch on, as we talked about it this past weekend a little bit, of the loved one as reader. So not as a character in your book necessarily, but as a reader. And I brought up the example of Danny Shapiro. Um, she's written both fiction and memoir. And she's written two memoirs, Slow Motion and Devotion, and she wrote a great essay in the New York Times Book Review, I think, two summers ago. Um, If you want to look it up, her first name is spelled D-A-N-I Shapiro, Um, I think two years ago. And it was about her... She wrote Slow Motion, her first memoir, before she was married and before she was a mother. Um, and it's about being, uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, a sort of wild and crazy woman in her 20s having an affair with a married man, drugs, alcohol, dropping out of college. And her parents get in a devastating car accident, and it turns her around. Um, as, as tragic as that incident is, it, it, it's what snaps her back into getting her life Uh, back on its feet. And so that's the gist of the memoir. And flash forward a couple uh, decades, and she's now married with an adolescent son, and she has been interviewed on, uh, or or there's a re-airing of an original interview with her on NPR about this memoir, and she doesn't want her son to hear it or to know about the memoir because she's a wild and crazy 20-something. And now she's a mother. And so she talks about that in this essay. You know, how do I reconcile these two roles in my life of a, mem- a mother and an artist? And she said, I still stand behind that, that memoir. I'm very proud of that. Um, I wrote it at a time before I took on this other role as mother. Um, and so what, what do I do with that? How do I reconcile that? So he, he's not a character in it at all, obviously. He didn't even exist yet. But she wrote it without knowing that he was going to come along. And it's, it's sort of the difference between thinking about this issue during the creative act. You know, like I did, the loved ones were already in existence, and there were going to be characters, but they were also going to be reading it. I was worried on both levels. Versus engaging in the creative act freely, as she did when she wrote Slow Motion before she was married, but recognizing the possibility of issues later. Um, I may go on to get married and have children, and the children may know about this memoir, and how do I feel about that? Should that be on your mind? Should it not? Will it, will it hamper your creativity too much? I, I leave that as an open question. And 
Children in particular, for those of you who are parents, you may feel like that's an especially tricky reader because you want to protect them, you know, whether it's from your former wild self or from some deep, dark, tragic secret in the family or just something painful or something that's different from their sense of reality. Whatever it is, you feel you want to protect your loved ones in general, but there's something particular about wanting to protect your children and so that that that's a real that's a real struggle how can i be mother or father and artist and feel like i'm living up to both roles um any quick examples of that from anybody where you're worried about your readers it doesn't have to be your children well yeah you brought this up before about your children can you say more well i i think tell my children because they don't want to talk about mm. And I did change their names at the request of the one who was seven, okay. who's now 26. Okay. Because she said, I want your book to be successful, Mom, because you <clears throat> have a story to tell, but I don't want someone picking it up, reading it, reading Jenny Curtis and calling me right. and asking me about the worst time in my life. Right. So I respected that. Yeah. And I did change their names for them. And that's enough to veil their identity, like that'll be sufficient. Well, people will still know. But they probably already know the story, right. the people right. who would recognize her. Right. Okay, um, got it. There was a piece of information um, that nobody knows except my older daughter um, because there was this formidable force between us. She was studying in Europe the 16 months her father was sick, okay. and I didn't tell her okay. because she's studying in Europe. Right. Um, I, I wanted to protect her. Um, so she comes home, and he's near death. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knew he was sick, but yeah. my house. Not how bad, yeah. Right, and she didn't know that her brother ran away. I mean, there was all this going on that she was not privy to. So that was a real force between us. So yeah. one time when she attacked me um, verbally mm-hmm. about these decisions I had made, mm-hmm. um, I, in anger, mm-hmm. told her something that I wish she didn't know. Okay. She does. So when she knew I was writing the book, she said, are you going to include okay. this information? Okay. But it's that red herring that does not further the story. It would hurt her and not even further and the story. So the other children. Right. So, right. So it doesn't need to be said. Great. Thank you for sharing all that. It's a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'd be curious to know what you would have to say about a writing fiction based on your family, and b how you deal writing about dead people, for example. Uh, you have terrible things to say about your deceased brother, right. whom your sisters adore. Right. Your sisters who are still alive. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Um, uh, he asked about f- fictionalizing about real people, which I can speak to a little, but I don't have a lot of experience with that personally. <clears throat> and also writing about people who are dead, but there may still be loved ones alive who feel differently about that dead person than you do. Um, so in that case, just to... Uh, answer that one first uh, you know some people joke well, I'm going to wait to write my memoir until everybody's dead you know <clears throat> because then I'm not going to hurt anyone's feelings well well, yes and no because if they're surviving people like you said if, if, if you feel terribly about your deceased brother but your sister adored him and she's still around and has an opinion 
it's her feelings you need to worry about. Yeah, he's, he's not going to talk back to you about how you portray him. So again, it's case by case, depending on how the relationships are in the family. But um, if there's a conversation that can be had with, for instance, the surviving sibling about this idea, again, of multiple truths, you know, that, uh, you know, like you were saying about your father and the alcoholism, like we had different relationships with our brother. And I felt this way about him, and here's why. I mean, this is what's interesting, like I said earlier, that Philip Lopez said, um, you know, writing about one's family can be a gift. You know, it can poison the air or clear it. And so, yes, you're creating this artistic work, but the work can be a catalyst to having maybe these really meaningful conversations in your family that, memoir aside, may be useful to your relationship. Um, You know, hopefully... If anything, the memoir will either not have an effect on your relationship or it'll bring you closer. Hopefully it won't drive a wedge between you. You know, that's, that's the goal here is for that not to happen. But it could really prompt some interesting conversations about, well, I had this relationship with him, you had this one. Um, in terms of fictionalizing, I, I don't have personal experience with that, but, um, you know, I sort of joked at the beginning, novelists have it easy, and of course that's not true because... Uh, people, loved ones, certainly recognize themselves in characters in a novel, whether they're accurate or not. That's the thing. I've, I've talked to novelists where they say, you know, my mother doesn't like the way she's portrayed in my novel, but guess what? That's not based on her. <laughs> you know? So it's like, you know, so, so that kind of thing. You know, people, it, it's a little disingenuous because, and, and I'm generalizing broadly, but, you know, people act as though they're, they're very terrified of being portrayed, but, you know, like Philip Lopez it said some people are mad at me because they're not included or I don't talk about them enough so if there's a novelist you know his or her loved ones may seek themselves out in the characters um, whether or not that's actually the case so that's another interesting dynamic um, you know do, do you want to be written about or not um, I just have another minute or two so I wanted to uh, first of all thank you again for being here and I wanted to take a sip of water and uh, I really think that your being here this morning shows that you're already being thoughtful about this issue. So, in other words, the fact that you're <clears throat> perhaps worried about it is a good sign that it'll be okay because you're not just plowing forward with, you know, no, either being totally paralyzed in your art or plowing forward and not giving a damn about other people's feelings. You're not doing either of those things or you probably wouldn't be very interested in this topic. You'd think, well, I have it all figured out one way or the other. Um, So you're sensitive not just to your writing but also to your relationships with other human beings um, who, again, may be characters in your work or maybe readers of it or maybe both. Um, I'd like to leave you with a somewhat (laughs) gentler quote than the Garrison Keillor one that I started off with. Um, This is, uh, again, the writer Danny Shapiro, who's quoting her friend Honor Moore, um, who has also written about her own family. So Honor Moore said, We don't choose our stories. Our stories choose us. And if we don't write them, if we ignore them, we are somehow diminished. But at the same time, I don't feel that being a writer gives any of us the right to just let it rip to disregard the feelings of the people surrounding us. So I take care. Perhaps not as much as some people would like, but as much as I can and still not be diminished. And there you have it. The terrible, impossible, fundamental calculus that is at the heart of every memoirist's life. 
To find your voice is to tell your truth. And there will be a different version of that truth for each and every one of us. Uh, Or as Philip Lopate offers, three quick rules of thumb. One, befriend only people who are too poor to hire lawyers to sue you. (laughs) Two, if you plan to write about friendship, make lots of friends because you're bound to lose a few. And three, for the same reason, try to come from a large family. Thank you so much.